How are we now? According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 51. Look how close we are. Jeremiah 51. There's some confusion as to my departure. The confusion can be resolved by looking at Jeremiah. I'm teaching chapter 51 this week and 52 next week, and then uh, leaving for the airport for a four o'clock flight. So uh, if you are keeping uh, the Ukrainian trip in your prayers, um, and you were a week early in those prayers, I don't mind, that's fine, pray a week early, but I am not leaving today, I'm leaving one week from today, because we got a lot of ground to cover here in Jeremiah 51. Look how many pages you got to flip just to get through Jeremiah 51. And uh, we're going to get down through verse 64, and we're going to do it before communion. They're giggling. All right. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the Word of God. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, humbling our hearts under the authority of truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you, throne of grace, this morning, so thankful. We assemble every day, every Sunday when we come together is the Lord's day, is the day of resurrection. But I do thank you on this day when Western Christendom identifies this as the observance for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I thank you that even in secular culture, news programming will identify that uh, Christians around the world testify to a risen Savior. And Father, that is a public witness for which I am thankful. Father, we uh, thank you for our assembly and the blessings of the Word of God as you've been providing, Father, for the past 51 weeks, 50 weeks, as we are going chapter by chapter through such a powerful, powerful book. I thank you for the, uh, the glimpses that you've given us and uh, look forward to a day when, in your grace, we can go back again chapter by chapter and start to dig out some of the incredible meat that's to be contained in each one of these chapters, including today. Father, the great depths of doctrine that come here in chapter 51. So open the eyes of our understanding. Bless our time of study, Father. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, last week in chapter 50, there were a total of five realms of study that uh, we got through by the end of the hour. Uh, this week, we have seven realms of study that we're going to get through in this very long chapter. Uh, so we will cover all seven of them. How deep we cover each one is uh, is of interest to me, and I'm a little bit curious. But let's uh, let's start off with verses one through four. Thus says the Lord: Behold, I'm going to arouse against Babylon and against the inhabitants of Leb Kamai. Never heard of it. A, the spirit of a destroyer. It's not a real place. It's a code, and we'll talk about that as well. I will dispatch foreigners to Babylon that they may winnow her and may devastate her land, for on every side they will be opposed to her in the day of her calamity. Let not him who bends his bow bend it, nor let him rise up in his scale armor. So do not spare her young men. Devote all her army to destruction. They will fall down slain in the land of the Chaldeans and pierced through in their streets. All right, so there's verses 1 through 4. And we have here a description of the fall of Babylon in both human and angelic terms. 
If you were with us last week, you'll recall that in chapter 50, which introduced this section, 50 and 51, should be thought of as a unit, we have a sequence of messages against Babylon, a total of 12 messages against Babylon in these two chapters. And very little of it had anything to do with the 6th century B.C., Very little of it had anything to do with what we call the Neo-Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar and his successors. Uh, That empire was uh, followed by Persia, followed by Greece, followed by Rome. There's something new that happens with Babylon in God's prophetic calendar. And so most of these messages that are addressing the fall of Babylon are actually looking forward to the tribulation looking forward eschatologically to the time of Israel's ultimate deliverance when Israel is brought into their kingdom. And we know this because of markers in the text, and we know this because of indications we have in the text. We also know this because with hindsight, when we try to look back to see their fulfillment, we have to be honest and say much of this is not yet fulfilled. Much of this was not fulfilled when Cyrus overthrew Babylon. We have details of that in Daniel chapter 5. We have details of that throughout the Old Testament. We can historically go back and see that if we handle the Babylon prophecies literally, then we can't find fulfillment in the Old Testament. But Jesus promised that everything spoken must be fulfilled. And so we understand that these are looking forward eschatologically to the end times. And we know that not simply because they're unfulfilled, but because markers in the text point us to an eschatological fulfillment. And you'll see what we're talking about with each one of these. We have a code here. We had it previously in chapter 25 called an atbash. And an atbash code is a way of taking the alphabet forward and backwards and creating a code like we would do in English if, if uh, A represented Z and B represented Y and C represented X, for example. So you can just write the alphabet across the top and then write it backwards underneath and you've got your code, all right? Well, an atbash then uh, with respect to Hebrew with Aleph and Baith, you have Tau and you have Sheen and you do the same thing. So it's called an atbash. Allah for Tau, Baith for Sheen, and uh, that's the name they give for it. It's a cryptic name. And uh, I said more related to that uh, back in chapter 25 when we had a few other at-bashes that were present in that chapter. Uh, and, and there's more coming up here too, by the way. Down to verse 41, there's another expression for Babel called Shishak. And Shishak we saw in chapter 25. We see it again here in this chapter in verse uh, 41, how Shishak has been captured and the praise of the whole earth has been seized, how Babylon has become an object of horror among the nations. So we have the Atbash code for, for Babylon called Shishak. The BBL is Shishak. All right. So you end up with Shishak instead of Babel. And uh, both terms are used there in verse 41. And these are the markers I'm talking about. This is the recognition for why we have to handle these these messages differently. Something different is happening here, separate from, say, uh, when we were studying the Philistines or the Moabites or the Edomites or any other group that God says you're going to get destroyed, uh, they got destroyed, all right? But with Babel, God says you're going to get destroyed, but there's something different happening in the text, and we want to understand that for what it is. That's why we have in Revelation 17 and Revelation 18 where we're told that uh, the name Babylon written on the harlot is mystery. We're told that the name written is a mystery, Babylon. And we want to understand, wait a minute, there's something different happening in the text there because of the use of musterion with respect to mystery in Revelation 17 and Revelation 18. 
we're told in these first four verses that the destroyer is coming. The destroyer is coming. And uh, the destroyer here, we understand, uh, devoting all her army to destruction. And the, uh, the uh, destroyer is coming. I'm going to arouse against Babylon the spirit of a destroyer. And you can have some fun with this and the vocabulary related to destruction and how God himself is typically the agent of destruction when he comes to, to do this. This was the case in Egypt in Exodus chapter 12. The destroyer came, Exodus 12 and verse 13 and verse 23. You can do some uh, Hebrew studies if you want on this with Shaddad and the vocabulary there. It's etymologically connected to El Shaddai, one of the great names of the Lord Almighty and His power and His might. But in Exodus chapter 12, I like to share some of these passages as well. They're useful for us. Not only to see a parallel text, but also to see a principle that applies. We don't have to worry about the destroyer, <laughs> okay, because of the blood. And in Exodus chapter 12, we read this. Verse 13 says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so the promise is when he sees the blood, then he passes over. That's the whole doctrine related to Passover and the night in which Israel was redeemed out of Egypt. Verse 23 of Exodus 12, the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow, notice, will not allow the destroyer to come in to your houses to smite you. All right, so there's something significant that's happening with respect to this destroyer. Something is happening differently with the destruction of Babylon because it involves the destroyer and it involves the necessity of blood redemption to rescue them. All right, and this is the case. When Israel is rescued at the end of the tribulation, it's not just an earthly rescue. Only believers are permitted to enter into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Unbelievers will not enter into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Any who happen to survive the tribulation are going to be executed. The sheep and goat judgment is going to send all unbelievers to hell. The millennial kingdom begins with only believers. And that's why we see the destroyer that's mentioned here in this context. But when he sees the blood, we're rescued, right? When he sees the blood, that's the provision. You and I, when he sees the blood, and that's when we partake in in communion. We have the cup, we have the bread, and we have the cup, and we identify with that blood, the blood of Jesus Christ that purchased our eternal life. All right, so there's a lot more that we can deal with, but in the interest of time, we've got six more topics to cover. So let's uh, let's move on. Verses five and following. For neither Israel nor Judah has been forsaken by his God, the Lord of hosts, although their land is full of guilt before the Holy One of Israel. So the second message here starts. It takes us from verse 5 down to verse 14, and we're introduced to a golden cup. Babylon is the Lord's golden cup, which the Lord has allowed to intoxicate the nations of the earth. Verse 6, flee from the midst of Babylon and each of you save his life. Do not be destroyed in her punishment, for this is the Lord's time of vengeance. He is going to render recompense to her. 
Now it's interesting because the command to flee Babylon is not consistent with the uh, the Old Testament. It's not consistent with the sixth century BC. It was the uh, dis- it was the conquering of Babylon by the Persians that freed Israel. The Persians allowed the Jews to go back to the land. The Persian Cyrus would issue a decree and Zerubbabel could bring them back and Ezra could bring them back and Nehemiah could bring them back. They weren't commanded to flee Babylon, all right? But in a tribulational context, they are commanded to flee. And uh, that becomes a, a marker in the text as well. Verse 7, Babylon has been a golden cup in the hand of the Lord, intoxicating all the earth. The nations have drunk of her wine, therefore the nations are going mad. When you're trying to get somebody drunk, do you have a special cup that you use? I'm teasing. But the Lord does, all right? The Lord does. He has this special golden cup and he assigns it. And back in chapter 25, he assigned it to Jeremiah. Jeremiah went on a preaching tour to all the Gentile kings with a golden cup in hand and preached as he made those kings drink from his golden cup. This is foreshadowing of the great tribulation of Israel and the golden cup that will be uh, employed by the Lord uh, worldwide. Uh, So the nations are going mad. Sounds like today, doesn't it? Uh, Verse 8, suddenly Babylon has fallen and been broken. Wail over her. Bring balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. I'm reminded of a Monty Python skit, I think, at that point but it's just a flesh wound or something you know but no we're not going to heal this this is there's no coming back from this we applied healing to babylon but she was not healed forsake her and let us each go to his own country for her judgment has reached to heaven and towers up to the very sky the lord has brought about our vindication come let us recount in zion the work of the lord our god and so it become this deliverance becomes an opportunity for corporate worship and they get to assemble in zion in jerusalem and they get to recount the glories of god who delivered them from this uh this great destruction back in chapter 25 you might recall if you were here 26 weeks ago uh, Jeremiah had previously toured the world and made Gentile kings drink from his golden cup. And uh, the narrative of this is in chapter 25, verses 15 through 19. And uh, I'll refer you to those notes and to that MP3 file if you want to listen to it again. It's uh, just sitting there on the website minding its own MP3 business. Also, there's now a, a, a PDF document. You can go and, and review the printed notes. It's sitting there on the website minding its own PDF business. All right. But understand, this is all foreshadowing of a cup yet to be bestowed. Because Revelation 17 talks about this cup again. Revelation 18, we talk about the prophetic destruction of Babylon in both a religious and a commercial application. So the cup of wrath remains a future prophecy to those who take the mark of the beast. Revelation 14, verse 8 and verse 10. Also eschatological Babylon. That's why there's so much in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel does not apply in the 6th century B.C. It looks forward to the end times. Eschatological Babylon. You can see this in Revelation 16, 19, Revelation 17, 4, Revelation 18, 6. All right? I'm not going to spend a ton of time on any of these either, but let me at least grab them briefly for you. I'm headed to Ukraine so I can teach Daniel and Revelation for two weeks and Looking forward to that. 
This will be my sixth time teaching Daniel and Revelation, and I'm going to get the hang of it one of these times. Revelation 14. You'll notice verse 8 and verse 10. Another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And all of the elements that we have we're studying in Jeremiah 51, including wine, drinking, the immorality, the witchcraft, all these things we see repeated, these themes that come back in Revelation. None of them were fulfilled in the Old Testament. Um, that's 14.8. 14.10. Uh, he will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. That's anyone who does not take the mark, right? No, verse 9. Another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, those in the tribulation who submit to the mark make themselves unsavable in the tribulation. He will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And so these themes with the golden cup, with the wine, with the drunkenness. Chapter 16 and verse 19. The great city was split in three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before, before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Chapter 17 and verse 4. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of unclean things of her immorality. All right. And this is on her forehead, a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. All right. If you want more on that, I recommend our Revelation series so you can identify who the harlot is today. Finally, Revelation 18.6. Pay her back even as she has paid. And this is why we're told to flee. The Jews are told to flee. Verse 4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive her plagues. And uh, verse 6, Pay her back even as she has paid and give back to her double according to her deeds and the cup which she has mixed, mixed twice as much, for her. So the agent that's been getting all these nations drunk now has to drink herself and actually gets the double dose. And these are the principles, of course, we teach when we teach double compound discipline in the hand of God's wrath upon the wicked nation. Wow, there's weeks worth of teaching in eight minutes. All right. But the golden cup, understand, to, to properly understand Revelation, you've got to do your homework in Jeremiah. And you've got to understand what the role is of this prophet to the nations, what the, the role is of this cup, and what's being spoken of then as nations export their immorality. What's our prime export today in the United States of America? <laughs> All right, never mind. The third development, the sovereignty of God in creation places him higher than the fallen angels. Now they themselves are called gods. He is the God of gods, and they are called Elohim. They're not him, of course, but these fallen angels that demand worship and he mocks them, he challenges them in verses 15 through 26. 
The sovereignty of God in creation places him higher than the fallen angels who themselves were considered to be gods. This bothers some folks. I think we've taught it significantly and frequently enough that we're, we're acceptable with the, the concept of these mighty angels being called gods, being called El or Elohim. Because we know that they themselves are created. They themselves are angels, spirit beings, that they just have that, that level of, of might and power where they're called gods. But you'll notice, Jeremiah 51, 15, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the, in the heavens, and he causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and brings forth the wind from the storehouses. See, it's not these idols that are doing any of that. God's the one that remains sovereign in, in his creation. All mankind is stupid. I'm going to put that on a business card. Okay? And scripture. You want to hand out scripture to people, right? All mankind is stupid, devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. For his molten images are deceitful. There is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of mockery. In the time of their punishment, they will perish. It's actually noteworthy that in the great tribulations, the restraint is so lifted from Satan, he's actually permitted to put breath into the image of the beast. And it's remarkable, the permissive will that allows Satan a degree of divine power that he's never exercised before. And the breath that is, that is permitted to enter into the image of the beast is uh, unique uh, in the history of all human idolatry. All right. And um, there's so much here as it comes down through verse 26. There's shattering that takes place. Pay attention to the shattering. He says, um, all right. So these idols are are empty, there's no breath in them, but the portion of Jacob is not like these. Verse 19, for the maker of all is he, and of the tribe of his inheritance, the Lord of hosts is his name. He's the living and breathing, real God of the universe, and he's the God of Jacob. He's the God of Israel. All the nations have non-breathing, non-living idols. Israel has the true Lord God. All right, verse 20, he says, you are my war club, my weapon of war. He's uh, rebuking Babylon here, the instrument of his wrath. With you I shatter the nations. With you I destroy kingdoms. And there's uh, the, the tandem here of the, the destruction with the shatter. And, but the shatter gets repeated again and again and again. With you I shatter the horse and his rider. With you I shatter the chariot and its rider. With you I shatter man and woman. With you I shatter old men and youth. With you I shatter young man and virgin. With you I shatter shepherd and flock. With you I shatter the farmer and his team, and with you I shatter governors and prefects. Boy, spend some time there, (laughs) okay? Shatter, 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 shatter. He's making a point, and he's making it pretty vividly. But I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea. See, the problem is part of their shattering is he's using them to judge Israel. He's using them to judge Judah, specifically in the Old Testament, Israel eschatologically in the tribulation and what happens when you curse israel you get cursed that's right so the war club in his hand that's used to punish israel that war club also is slated for destruction 
absolutely slated for destruction. And that's why he says, uh, I am against you, O destroying mountain, who destroys the whole earth. And uh, this is where it's going to happen. All right. Whole tribulation right here in one passage. Idolatry is mankind's stupidity, exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping the creature rather than the creator. I tell you, this is a principle that applies. I don't care what flavor of idolatry you want to talk about. And there's no shortage of them out there. There's, there's an abundance of idolatry in the world today. And every example of it is what this verse describes. Mankind's stupidity, exchanging the truth of God for a lie, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Following along, the, uh, when you fall away from the faith, what are you paying attention to? Deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. When you're falling into idolatry, then this is what you're pursuing here in Jeremiah 51, 15. All mankind is stupid in the application there. And yet, there they go. <laughs> okay, There's no shortage of illustrations in uh, false religions in the world today. Anyway, uh, it's a message we've already read in verses 15 through 19. It was given previously in chapter 10. Verses 12 through 16, you know, those idols can't breathe, they can't talk, they can't eat. In fact, they can't even move around. If you want to move it from one room to the other, you've got to move it around, okay? Because it just sits there. That's what an idol does. Romans one twenty five speaks about that, about exchanging the truth of God for a lie, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And fundamentally, that's all religion. That's all idolatry in the world today. We want to be clear on that. The shattering weapon. The shattering weapon is entrusted to agents of God's holiness and glory. Keep in mind, you and I in the New Testament have shattering weapons. We're told in Corinthians, the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And so there's a church age application to be made with respect to the weapons of our warfare. Won't get into that today. But just in a, in a national basis here, we, we see this again and again and again. And um, I think in some of these, uh, they're more obvious than others. Isaiah 27 is pretty obvious as we have um, uh, judgment in a context there and the shattering that happens there. This is in the, in the passage that introduces Leviathan. We can, we can, uh, we're going to hit Isaiah 27 a couple of times today. Uh, in that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. With his fierce, great, and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. Just hold that thought for a few minutes. We'll be back here shortly. And in the context of this, we have smashing down in verse 9. Therefore, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven. How does he forgive Jacob's iniquity? Smashing, okay? This will be the full price of the pardoning of his sin. When he makes all the altar stones like pulverized chalk stones. That's the smashing activity from Jeremiah 51. When Asherim and incense altars will not stand. See, God has to bring about a complete smashing destruction of all idolatry against him. And this is what happens in the divine judgment of the great tribulation. Ezekiel 9.2 is another example. Ezekiel 9.2 Contemporary with Jeremiah is Ezekiel. Chapter 9. Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate. (laughs) 
Uh, here's a fun vision for you. Verse 1, draw near, O executioners of the city, each one with destroying weapon in his hand. This is better than the Moab bomb the Air Force just dropped in Afghanistan. All right. Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate which faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. Among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case at his loins. Ooh, I'm glad he's there. And uh, they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. So uh, what's the scribe about? Why is he there? Why is it not just the six guys with the smashing weapons in their hand? Well, because uh, the one guy is going to go through first and mark out those that are prepared for protection. And they get a mark and they get sealed and they get protected. And then the destroyers go in and uh, wreak their havoc. All right. They do their smashing. Psalm 2 and verse 9. Psalm 2 and verse 9. Psalm 2, that should be familiar. What's Psalm 2? Our Lord on the throne, the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And the nations are in an uproar. But he says, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. The rule of Jesus Christ will be a thousand years of smashing a thousand years of smashing. Why does it take a thousand years of smashing? Yeah, we're going to learn some things coming up about the millennium. It's not the victorious success a lot of people want to make it out to be. It ends with the Gog-Magog revolt. And it's, been, it's had the rod of iron and the smashing throughout. The breaking and the smashing, as it says there. Nine times Babylon is spoken of as the shattering weapon in God's hands. The unrestrained permissive will for Satan who also engages in shattering attacks. And the same activity we see today in, in Jeremiah 51, uh, Daniel speaks about it in Daniel 12, 7. Paul speaks about it in 2, Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, how uh, it's given over to Satan and to Antichrist in the coming tribulation. And finally, Revelation 13, verses 7 through 10, when the first beast comes up out of the sea, when that beast is empowered by the dragon to wage war against the elect. So stay tuned uh, for those things in your eschatological studies. Daniel 12, 7, 2 Thessalonians 2, 6 through 9, Revelation 13, verses 7 through 10. How many of these do I want to get into? All right. Are you with me still? Everyone breathing? All right, Daniel 12. Verse 1 says, At that time Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. Michael the archangel is the guardian angel for the nation of Israel, for the Jewish people. Okay? It's kind of silly, but Kiev thinks that Michael is their archangel. And in the Orthodox you know, church, they, they view Michael as the patron angel for the city of Kiev. Um, uh, they're, they're wrong. Okay, This passage here says it's uh, Israel. And at that time, there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone found written in the book, will be rescued. Good thing that scribe's going through with the a, with a, a scroll and the marker to, to mark those that are his before the smashers arrive. Uh, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Anyway, we get down in the context of this. There's a man dressed in linen who's answering all these questions there. 
and verse 7. I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand, his left toward heaven, and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for time, times, and half a time. You wonder why three and a half years is so significant? Time, times, and half a time. And uh, as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. This is a part of his program to bring Israel to repentance. Until their idolatry power is shattered, they will not come to repentance. They will not look upon him whom they pierced. It has to be shattered. All right, so that's Daniel 12. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in the New Testament. By the way, if you have a loved one that has not yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ, then uh, pray for them because this, uh, this shows what, what they are left to when the trumpet sounds and, and they are left behind. It is not a pleasant uh, chapter to read through. 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 6 through 9. You know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. There is a restraint until the church is gone. And then the restraint is lifted. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until it's taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, with bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. I hope Antichrist is alive in the world today. I hope we're that close. But he can't be revealed until the restraint is lifted. But then when that restraint is gone, look at his power. The one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with a lot of power? No, it says all power. That's significant. All power and signs and false wonders with all deception of wickedness for those who perish. Remember, we're not the perishing ones, okay? God gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So thank God we're delivered out of this. For those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And this is what they're delivered over to. This is the unfolding plan of Satan in the tribulation under Antichrist with all power. That's extraordinary. Revelation 13 the dragon on the, on the seashore and he calls the beasts out, the first beast from the sea, the second beast from the earth. And the description here, verse 7 says, it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Tribulational believers, those who get saved after the rapture, they've got hell in front of them. They're going to go through warfare directed against their, towards their extermination. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all, see, we have the, the undoing of Babel, right? At Babel, God separated all the nations. Here, he brings them all back and allows Satan to put them all under Antichrist. That's why it's spoken of as Babel, eschatologically. And uh, all who dwell on the earth and worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life, of the Lamb who has been slain. He who has an ear, let him hear. And there it is. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with a sword, with a sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and faith of the saints. Tribulational saints, enduring to the end so as to be saved. 
All right. Great shattering. Thankfully, of course, you and I, if you're here today as a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not going to see any of that. That trumpet's going to sound and you and I get to go to heaven. We're, not de- we're, we're delivered from the wrath to come. This is, not our, this is not our destiny. So we can relax on that. All right, back to Jeremiah 51. Here's a fun text. Spend a month here. Verses uh, 27 through 33 speaks of a harvest. It speaks of a harvest. We know the harvest of judgment is the end of the age. Jesus taught us that in Matthew 13, verses 39 and 40. And so when we're looking at a harvest text like we're looking at here, verses 27 through 33, what are we dealing with? Not uh, Cyrus overthrowing Babylon. We're dealing with eschatology again, the end times. Lift up a signal in the land, blow a trumpet among the nations, consecrate the nations against her, summon against her the kingdoms of Ararat. When's the last time we heard of Ararat? Right? I don't think we've heard of Ararat since Noah's flood. Been a while. But here they are. Uh, Mini, that's a small kingdom. Ashkenaz, appoint a marshal against her. Bring up the horses like bristly locusts. Consecrate the nations against her, the kings of the Medes, the governors of all the prefects of every land and their dominion. So the land quakes and rise for the purpose of the Lord against Babylon stand to make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitants. That's a theme we see over and over again in chapter 50 and 51. I stressed it last week. Desolation, no inhabitants. Didn't happen in the Old Testament. Babylon remained inhabited for centuries. It was a a population center of the Jewish people for centuries. They wrote the Talmud in Babylon in later centuries. None of this has an Old Testament fulfillment. All right. In any event. Verse 33, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, the daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor. At the time it is stamped firm, yet in a little while the time of harvest will come for her. And so we have a harvest at the end of the age. Unparalleled global war must precede Messiah's peace. You realize uh, World War I was supposed to be the war that, to end all wars? <laughs> and then World War II beat that, all right? And then uh, we, we think of these two great world wars of the 20th century and we think never again, oh, just wait. The tribulation will be like nothing this world has ever seen. It's going to make us forget all about, it's going to make humanity forget all about the 20th century and World War I and World War II in its destruction. I won't take the time, but read Joel 3 and you're going to see the passage in there that says, uh, beat your uh, plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. (laughs) Okay, Get ready for war. War has to happen before peace. Everybody wants to quote the passage that says, beat your swords into plowshares and your spears into pruning hooks. Well, yeah, that'll happen, but not until war comes first. Tribulation precedes millennium. And if you want to, you can visualize world peace all you want, like the bumper sticker tells you to do, but you better visualize the tribulation first before you can visualize Jesus Christ conquering in Armageddon and establishing his, uh, his glorious throne. Unparalleled global war must precede Messiah's peace. The Apostle John also saw this reaping, Revelation 14. And the the angel reached down with his sickle and reaped the harvest there. Revelation 14, verses 14 through 20. 
We get to uh, verse 34. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has devoured me and crushed me. He has set me down like an empty vessel. He has swallowed me like a dragon, like a monster. Cross off monster and put dragon. He has filled his stomach with my delicacies. He has washed me away. Jerusalem and her destruction could claim to have been devoured by the dragon. And it's an interesting lament here. The, the lamentation of having been swallowed, <laughs> okay? And other than Jonah, I don't know a human being that could write such a song. But the, the, that's the, the imagery of what we see here, to be swallowed by the tanin, the dragon. And uh, not only you, but all your treasures for his dessert, and then washing it down with something else, apparently. May the violence done to me and to my flesh be upon Babylon, the inhabitant of Zion will say. And, uh, and it goes on. Anyway, it's interesting here to read through this, to see the vengeance. Again, there's total destruction in verse 37. Babylon will become a heap, a haunt of jackals. Again, are those canines? What's up with those jackals? Okay, They're a little... The, the, the tan I find interesting because tannin is dragon and tan is jackal. And we have the, the brood, if you will, uh, the brood of vipers that Jesus speaks of. But anyway, there's the tannin and the tan, and these are the jackals here. And the dragon feeds them, by the way, in other passages, from the little scraps of his kills, <laughs> you know. All right. And uh, a parched land and a desert, a land in which no man lives. The description of it here is pretty comprehensive. Um, an object of horror and hissing without inhabitants. They will roar together like young lions. They will growl like lions' cubs. All right. Well, some fun stuff there. Uh, if you want to learn more about the dragon, you want to learn more about Leviathan, I recommend Job chapter 40. You've got a good description of him there with his scales, with his claws, with his teeth, with his wings, with the fire breathing. And, uh, and all the rest of it there. You want other dragon verses? The Tanin can be found in those passages there. Don't have time to look at them. But Genesis, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, we saw 27 earlier, Isaiah 27, 1. Isaiah 51, 9, Jeremiah, that's our passage today. Ezekiel 29, 3 and Ezekiel 32, 2. Interestingly enough, read those Ezekiel ones and you see the dragon and the, uh, the brood that gets fed from the dragon's carcass. You also have Leviathan verses. I recommend you pay attention to Leviathan. Levi Tanin, okay, I think. The Levi Tan, as it comes down to that. Uh, the priestly dragon, he was a priest before his fall. Uh, his gemstones were like the high priest garments in, in Ezekiel 28. But if you want to read more on Leviathan, you can read him. Again, Isaiah 27, 1, Psalm 74, 14, Psalm 104, 26, Job 3, 8, and Job 41, 1. Leviathan is a proper name. It refers to the dragon. It refers to Satan. This is our adversary, the devil. And he's in view in so many of these passages because it's not just the end of the world empires. God is having victory over Satan. All right. Don't get me lost there. (laughs) 
Uh, this, this, by the way, is on the website too, in the PDF, minding its own PDF business. If you don't have time to write it down. Um, let's look at verses 41 through 58. Believers should be mindful of the confusion in which they live, the Babylon in which they live, and remember Jerusalem for which they are waiting. These uh, names are, are symbolic. These names are significant. Babylon is confusion. Z- Jerusalem is peace. Which world do we live in today? <laughs> okay. I don't know about you, but the, the, the world I live in is a world of confusion. All right? It's a world in which people are crying out for peace. They're crying out for answers. They know there should be answers somewhere. And they're just not seeing it. All right? And so... Uh, here we have it, verses 41 through 58. And boy, this is a fun one to preach through. Um, but don't grow faint. Don't worry about it. Yes, there is, uh, there is judgment coming. Verse 44 says, I will punish Bel and Babylon. Um, verse 45 says, come forth from her midst, my people. Each one of you save yourselves. Your heart, uh, verse 46, now so that your heart does not grow faint, you are not afraid at the report that will be heard in the land. We shouldn't be afraid of what's coming. We should be on the alert and see it coming. Jesus said the same thing in his uh, Olivet Discourse. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars, but don't be afraid. These are merely the beginnings of birth pangs. But when you see the abomination, run. <laughs> okay? Don't be afraid, but run. Run far, run fast. All right. It's interesting. All right, we get down through verse 58. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. And this is the judgment that's happening here. Do not fear the reports of war. Jesus says this, Matthew 24, 6. But he also says, run in Matthew 24, 16. In fact, he gives the warning, he says, so dire, he says, pray that uh, it doesn't happen on the Sabbath. And he says, woe to those who are pregnant or with child. And I love that. It makes me laugh every time, okay? Have you ever seen a pregnant woman try to run? It's, it's, it's funny, okay? Um, they, they waddle more than anything. And they don't run very fast. There's not a lot of velocity associated with it. But uh, anyway... Revelation 18.4 as well, we already read, come out and be separate, come out from her in the uh, warning that's given there to commercial Babylon in Revelation 18 and verse 4. But don't fear. Don't fear the reports of war. Talking to somebody yesterday, they're all fearful. Fearful over Iran, fearful over North Korea, fearful over, I mean, all kinds of stuff in the news. Say, what are you afraid for? God's got a plan. We're in that plan. Praying for the peace of Jerusalem entails waiting upon the salvation of the Lord in His wrath and in His rescue. So many people quote this from Psalm 122.6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They don't want to really take into consideration the full context that that peace will happen. It's going to come about through the tribulation. It's going to come about through them getting smashed, having their idolatry smashed, having their pride broken down. It's going to be such that they will forget the Nazi holocaust the wrath upon the Jewish people at the hands of Antichrist will make every previous uh, extermination endeavor pale to nothingness. 
So praying for the peace of Jerusalem entails waiting upon the salvation of the Lord in His wrath and in His rescue. And I wish I had time for more of that because I, uh, I think that gets abused. I think uh, a lot of things get abused. I think Second Chronicles gets, gets abused. If my people which are called by my name, that's not America. That's Israel. All right? At best, we can make a secondary claim only by association with the, the teaching of the Word of God in, in local churches. All right. Finally then, the, the epilogue. It's an epilogue to the chapter. It's an epilogue to the book. It's a uh, he lived happily ever after story in verses 59 through 64. And, um, oh no, actually I'm wrong. I'm a week ahead of myself. That's next week when we look at Jehoiakim. Never mind. Forget I said that. 59 through 64. This is where Chuck Swindoll has all of his editors that take out that embarrassing stuff. The message which Jeremiah the prophet commanded Sariah, son of Neriah, the grandson of Messiah, when he went with Zedekiah, king of Judah, to Babylon in the fourth year of his reign. Did you know that? We didn't know that earlier. King Zedekiah, he reigned in Jerusalem for 11 years. And in the fourth year of his reign, he took a business trip to Babylon. What was he doing there? Well, read Daniel chapter 3 and you find out he was bowing before a golden statue. Zedekiah made a journey to Babylon in the fourth year of his reign. And Sariah, by the way, is the brother of, of Baruch we've seen before. Baruch's brother Sariah is tasked with a mission of his own during that same trip. And so while Zedekiah is there bowing at the great statue, remember uh, the three boys went and bowed to the statue so they get thrown in the fiery furnace? Okay. Well, all the subject tribute kings were brought in from all the far extent of Babylon to bow at the great statue of, of Nebuchadnezzar. And I think according to this text, we can make the case, although Daniel 3 doesn't say Zedekiah was among them, I think combining D- Daniel 3 with this text here, we can make the case that Zedekiah was right there. Zedekiah was bowing to Nebuchadnezzar in, uh, in that. And in the process, Sariah gets to do some preaching. And Sariah gets to come, and he's got a message. And he's going to read a letter when he gets there. So Jeremiah wrote in a single scroll all the calamity which would come upon Babylon, that is, all these words, the content of chapter 50 and 51. And uh, Jeremiah said to Sariah, as soon as you come to Babylon, see that you read all these words aloud. And this, uh, And then... Verse 62, say, you, O Lord, have promised concerning this place to cut it off so that there will be nothing dwelling in it, whether man or beast, but it will be a perpetual desolation. And as soon as you finish reading the scroll, you will tie a stone to it and throw it into the middle of the Euphrates. That's kind of fun. (laughs) Saying, as soon as you're done, take your notes, crinkle them all up, tie them to a rock and chuck it in the Colorado River. What's that about? Okay. And say, just so shall Babylon sink down and not rise again because of the calamity that I'm going to bring upon her and they will become exhausted. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. I believe chapter 52 is is an addition that Baruch makes after Jeremiah dies. We'll talk about that next week. Throwing this scroll into the Euphrates foreshadows the strong angel's great millstone in Revelation 18 and verse 21. When Babylon is thrown down, there's a great millstone that's thrown 
into, uh, into the sea. And I'm going to have to close with this so we can get to the communion service. But Revelation 18, 21. Oh, this is fast. Hebrews will be a lot slower when we start the book of Hebrews. Revelation 18 and verse 21. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And the sound of the harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer. No craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. Anyway, here's the destruction of commercial Babylon in Revelation 18. So throwing the scroll into the Euphrates foreshadows the strong angel's great millstone and the throwing of Babylon into the sea there of Revelation 18.21. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the blessings to study. And we know, Father, this has been a roller coaster. It's been rapid going through covering so many verses in such a short time. But I thank you, Father, in this format that we are getting a big picture. We are getting an overview. And your word is to be taught in its length and width and height and depth. And so, Father, I appreciate getting in in certain classes the the big picture format. I appreciate in other classes getting the more detailed and in-depth format. And I I love the the meat of your word in, in every dimension as you provide it. And Father, I pray that we would be mindful of what you've been teaching us, mindful in the Isaiah series, mindful in the Jeremiah series, these two great prophets that have application for our nation today. And I pray, uh, Father, for, uh, for uh, us as a church to learn these lessons, for us as a nation to learn these lessons. Father, that we might be humble before you in your hand of judgment. I thank you for the great prophecies of Jeremiah that, that are yet unfulfilled, Father, as they look forward to the end times, as they look forward to the deliverance of the Jewish people and the establishment of the millennial kingdom. Thank you for the role we have in Christ, that we return with him in his battlefield victory, and that we rule with him for all eternity. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. The classes will be brought in to join us here for our... Um, communion service. In the meantime...